if you uh, if you want to make more out get more out of the sermon pick up one of the go deep sheets that are out on the table near the exit and it will go over our text with you asking questions that you can think through and then you'll get more out of the text than maybe you otherwise would have and more out of the sermon so I'd encourage you to do that every week. They'll always be out here on the table right next to the exit door. We're in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17 today. We're starting a series in James, and we're starting it in chapter 4, which is a little weird, but we'll be coming back to chapter 1 next week. Last July, Britain's defense secretary was caught off guard on the floor of Parliament when he was speaking about uh, Islamic State terrorism in Syria. His iPhone interpreted what he said as Siri from his jacket pocket and said, I found something on Syria from the web and then started spouting facts. He totally didn't see that coming. In over a hundred years of Major League Baseball, only 16 men have homered four times in one game. Only 16 in over 100 years. And most of those 16 were power hitters. 12 of them hit 200 or more home runs in their career. Nine of them hit 300 or more career home runs. And then came Scooter Gennett. He's a 5'10", 185-pound utility player who has bounced from team to team during his major league career. He's a guy with only 38 home runs throughout his career. He was a guy in an 0 for 19 slump. And one day in June 2017, he hit a single and then four home runs, including a grand slam, 10 RBIs. And you know what? No one in the ballpark was more surprised than Scooter. He did not see that coming. In his novel, Jaber Crow, Wendell Berry, as his protagonists say, often I've not known where I was going until I was already there. I'm an ignorant pilgrim crossing a dark valley, and yet for a long time looking back, I've been unable to shake off the feeling that I have been led. I know what Jaber meant. When we got out of college, I had no intention of being a pastor, and Karen had no intention of being a pastor's wife. Uh, we did, however, plan to be missionaries, probably working with the poor in Latin America. So we had a general idea of how the future was going to work. We'd get jobs, check that one off. We'd get married, check that one off. Get a master's degree, no check in that one. We'd apply to our denomination for credentials, check. Do two years of home service, check. Probably as a youth pastor, there's no check in that one. I would be ordained check. We would be given approved missionary status, no check. Move to South America, maybe Ecuador, and spend the rest of our lives working there, no check. That's how we thought life would work. Instead, I, who never took a pastoral ministry course and couldn't, could think of nothing that I would like doing less than standing in front of a room full of people talking have spent almost 38 years pastoring and preaching, mostly in rural southern Michigan. I didn't see that coming. The fact is, none of us can see what's coming. 
We try to shine a light into the darkness that is the future by making plans, but it remains dark. How many of you can say that your life has turned out as you expected it would? Well, I thought somebody would raise their hand. <laughs> it's obvious that we can't see the future. But you know what? It's not obvious why. Physicists say this is one of the mysteries of the world. The arrow of time runs only in one direction, but they have no idea why. There's no reason, no, no mathematical reason, no reason they understand why it should. Humans can look back on the past, but they can't enter it. They can look, they can't look forward into the future, but they must enter it. Now, it may not always be that way. In the age to come, we may discover that time like space is dimensional, that we can move about in it as we now move about in space, forward and backward, up and down, in and out. But until then, we can't see the future. But we have no choice but to enter it. Time provides us with an opportunity to trust. There is time to trust. I mean, there is time in order that we may trust. That is why, at least in part, God placed us in a space-time continuum instead of some other environment. So we could trust our well-being depends on learning to trust and getting good at it. St. Paul wrote that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith or from trust to trust, exactly the same word. Sometimes I, I think we overuse the word faith because it sounds so religious and then we miss its, the, the dynamic part of faith, trusting God. Trust is needed at the beginning of our Christian life so we can enter into conversion Trust is needed as we go on. It sustains our souls like food sustains our bodies. We are saved by faith or trust. That's Ephesians 2.8. We walk by faith or trust. That's 2 Corinthians 5.7. We become mature by faith or trust. That's James 1.2-4. In other words, our Christian life begins with trust. It proceeds with trust. It reaches its desired end with trust. Otherwise, it doesn't begin, it doesn't proceed, and it doesn't reach its end. And St. Paul's shorthand, it's from faith to faith. Always. Not even the greatest saint ever outgrows the need to trust. If you thought that someday I'm going to be good at this and I won't need to trust so much, you're wrong. The only way to become great in the kingdom of God is to trust. And yet we do our level best to avoid it whenever possible. We hate situations where we don't know, or, or at least we realize we don't know, what's going to happen next. When the doctor calls and says, your blood work came back a little wonky and we're going to need you to come in for some more tests, it's not our first reaction to say, Lord, thank you for this opportunity to grow my soul by trusting you. When our work is doubled, but our deadline stays the same, we probably don't say, Lord, thank you. This is an incredible opportunity to grow by trusting you. 
We make plans and we try to use them like a battering ram to force our way into the future, irrespective of God. Remember the successful farmer in Jesus' story, Luke chapter 12? He did well for himself. He had a significant income. He expanded his holdings. And Jesus tells a story like this. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus sends the story this way. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. He didn't see that coming. But God did. Jesus went on to say, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. If you're a Christian, you've come over to God's side by trusting Jesus. The first order of the day is to get good at trusting God by including him in your plans. Or I probably should rephrase that. Get good at bringing your life into alignment with God's plans. There are all kinds of things in your future you don't see coming. But God does, and he knows how to position you so that those things will serve and build you rather than harm and diminish you. Now look at our text. It's James 4, 13 through 17. Now listen, you who say. And the Greek is, is something like, come on now. Come on now. You who say today or tomorrow, we'll go to this city or that, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we'll live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. That's actually something like you, you, it's a difficult thing to translate. You boast in your pride. It's the idea, look at me. I've done all these things. You boast about it. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. As we're going to see over the next couple months, James is always echoing Jesus. Here we have an echo of Jesus' story about the rich farmer whose life was suddenly required of him. But if James echoes Jesus, and he does, he also anticipates us. Today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. That's American culture talking. Set goals, make plans, work your plan, make a profit. Now, is there something wrong with that? Is making plans or making a profit unchristian? Are spontaneity and poverty more spiritual than preparation and profit? I don't think so. There's nothing in the Bible to suggest that. Spontaneity and poverty aren't moral virtues, and neither are preparation or profit. A person can be spontaneous and poor, and please God. A person can be prepared and profitable and displease God or the other way around. It's not whether you're poor or profitable or spontaneous or prepared. It's something deeper. It's the kind of person you're becoming while you're poor or profitable 
spontaneous, or prepared. God really, really cares about the kind of person you're becoming. As James said earlier in chapter 4, and this is, this is really the thread that his thought is following through the chapter. Pride places a person in conflict with God. God resists the proud. And I'm here to tell you, you do not want to be in a tug of war with God. But gives grace to the humble. If you're in conflict with God, you're going to lose. You have a better chance of moving a mountain than you have of moving God when he resists you. You can't schmooze him, can't schmooze him, can't bully him, can't manipulate him. No one has ever or ever will force God to do anything. Now, James is not saying people are wrong because they make a profit. They're wrong because they don't think about God. The biggest factor in your success is not your education, nor your family of origin, nor your skills, nor the sign you were born under. The single biggest factor in your success is God. Now, I have to clarify what I mean by success. When you hear me speak of success, don't think money or possessions or prestige. The only success that means a thing is becoming the person God designed you to be a person who is genuinely grateful to be himself or herself, who's joyful, who's at peace with God and self and others, is a productive member of the church and of society. It's a person who is a blessing to others and a real factor in God's eternal overflowing happiness. This is a person who's still changing. Thank God. But who wouldn't change places with anyone else in the world? That's success. Now, if that's not what you're interested in, and you'd rather have money than a life you love, you'd rather have prestige than people who love you, then you're not going to find this message or the book of James very helpful. But if you want the life that I just described, you have to learn to trust And guess what? You are perfectly situated to do that. The whole creation was devised to help you become that person. James has an important lesson for us to learn about trusting God. And that is we can't start until we humble ourselves. This is verse 10. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. See, humility enables, lack of humility disables a person's ability to trust. You absolutely need to trust. A lack of humility will prevent you from doing so. If trust isn't working for you, I just, I can't trust. It may be that your trust app has been disabled by a lack of humility. How can you know? You can go to your friend and say, am I humble? And they'll probably say, oh, sure, you know, you're like everybody else. But how can you know? In James 4, James gives us examples of how a lack of humility manifests itself. So in verse 11, it manifests in speaking badly of others. 
If you gossip about people, if you look for opportunities to say things about the negative side of people in your life, that manifests a lack of humility. It also manifests in assuming an attitude of superiority over others. In verse 12, James calls it, or verse 11, speaking against and judging them. In verses 12 and 13, a lack of humility manifests in an assumption of control over the future that you don't have, that only belongs to God. Today or tomorrow, we'll go to this city or that, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. The constant here in the various ways that humility manifests or lack of humility manifests is this. It leaves God out. Acts as if he's not there. This is a farmer who stores up things for himself but isn't rich toward God. This is the person who judges others as if God himself isn't going to do it. And he's not only going to judge others, he's going to judge the would-be judge. This is the person who makes plans without God. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. There's nothing wrong with planning for the future, but there is everything wrong with leaving God out of the plan. All of us have seen, though we rarely see it in ourselves, how we're wired. All of us have seen how repulsive and sometimes ridiculous pride is. But one of the worst things about pride is that it cannot trust. It is inherently impossible for pride to trust. Pride disables trust. And if you can't trust God, you're in a world of hurt. James's solution is to humble yourself. And he gives us some ways to do that. One way is to acknowledge your ignorance. Now, you may be really smart as homo sapiens go, you may have made wise investments and, and good business decisions, but you can't see the future. The complexity of even relatively simple systems, like the weather front that came through here yesterday. At, at 9 o'clock, they were saying we'd get less than an inch of snow. At 10 o'clock, they said we're going to get an inch, and then look what happened. And that's relatively a simple system. The complexity of such systems is so much beyond our grasp that we can never be sure of what will happen. But look, we don't need to be because we can be sure of God. Our certainty doesn't rest on knowing what God will do next, but on knowing what he's done already. Not on being sure of his plans, but on being sure of his character. I don't know what time may bring, but I do know that my times are in nail-pierced hands, and they're the hands of time's king. As a song that I love, an old hymn puts it, my times are in your hands, Jesus the crucified. Those hands my cruel sins have pierced are now my guard and guide. Another way to humble yourself, remember we can't trust without humility. Another way to humble yourself is to admit your smallness. You are not a hurricane, you are a mist. That's verse 14. You're not permanent. You're only here for a little while. The world doesn't revolve around you, neither does the church, 
In fact, even your own life doesn't revolve around you. You, me, the church, the world, everything revolves around the one who is at the center and the center holds. It's only because he's at the center of things that they don't fall apart. If in your pride you will not revolve around him, your life will be mere anarchy. Another way to humble yourself is to include the Lord in your plans. And we have to get good at this, and most of us are not. When we look at the future, we start making plans, making that battering ram to burst our way into the future without thought of the Lord. James says, verse 15, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we'll live and do this or that. It's not that you shouldn't plan, but you shouldn't make plans without God. You should plan on him. Make plans, but consider them provisional. Seek God's will and consider it essential. And you have to find a way to apply this. And you will have opportunity. I guarantee you. Let's say you're thinking about college for, for yourself or your kids. You want a top-tier school. That means a 4.0 along with participation and extracurriculars. You make your plans, but you tell God that your plans are provisional. His will is essential. You're thinking about retiring. You need to work out how much income you're going to receive, determine if you need a part-time job, where you'll live, whether you can afford a golf club membership. Okay, great. Now ask God to show you as much of his will as will help you obey him. Look, you don't need to know any more than that. But you do need to know what will help you obey him. Ask him for that. Tell him your plans are provisional. His will is essential. You just heard from the doctor. Something in that blood work showed up, and you need to come back in. And so you rush to get ahead of things. You search out every possibility on the Internet for hours, and you're already looking into the best specialist to consult. Stop. Before you do any more, acknowledge your smallness and your neediness and God's greatness and his goodness. Tell him your plans are provisional. His will is essential. But what if his will conflicts with yours? That's the rub, isn't it? That's what worries us. But do you see what's happened? We've come full circle right back to the fundamental need and life-changing blessing it is to trust God. He created us in such a way that we can't see the future, and he did this so we would have the opportunity to trust. Trust is absolutely critical to our development, our happiness, our fulfillment. You can trust him. Trusting him is, in fact, the smartest thing you can do. Not so you can achieve what you want, but so that you can become who you're meant to be. Here are two reasons why you can trust God. First, the future is present to him. To us, it's dark. To him, even the darkness will not be dark, for darkness is as light to him. A repeated theme in Scripture, and this would bear your research. 
a repeated theme in the biblical revelation is that God knows the future. The wise man asks in Ecclesiastes, since no man knows the future, who can tell him what is to come? And the answer is God can. He knows. He probably won't because that would take away our opportunity to trust him, and we need that. But he could. The prophet Isaiah, God says through the prophet Isaiah, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. See, God's like an author who's written the greatest story ever and given it a perfect ending. He can dip into that story at any point in the storyline. At the beginning, when his character's having a clue about what's going on, in the middle, during the scary and intense parts, or at the end. He knows the whole story. Now, that God knows everything that's happened, is happening, or will happen, might not reassure you. Might scare you. Like the rest of us, you've done some pretty bad things. But here's what you need to know. God is not out to get you. He's out to have you. That's a totally different mindset. God is not out to get you. He's out to have you. And this is the second reason you can trust God. He is for you. He wants you and is so committed to making you his and making you all that you can be. He sent his son to share our limitations and even our death. He died so that you can become all that God planned for you to be. If he went that, that length for you, you can be sure he won't let anything stop him. Not in the past or in the present or in the future. So St. Paul, in the context of telling us that God makes everything that has happened, is happening, and will happen, serve our good, that's Romans eight twenty eight. he goes on to say, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? See, you can trust him. But you have to humble yourself so you can trust him. And you have to make up your mind you're going to trust him. I don't know what's going on in your life, but you do. Choose to trust him now. All right, let's pray. I'll give you a moment. You know what's going on in your life. You know where all the joints are, where there's a disconnect and you can't see how it will be connected. Those are the places. Would you choose to trust God now? Would you acknowledge your need? And trust him for his supply.
invite you to prove yourself. Not that you need to, Lord. But we invite you into these situations. Would you build us up in our most holy faith through Christ Jesus our Lord.